Hello and welcome to the Black Country Talking News, brought to you by the sight loss charity Beacons. We're pleased to confirm that the Talking News is now available via Alexa. Once you've enabled the Talking Newspapers skill, all you need to do is play Talking Newspapers and ask for the Black Country Talking News. Our Talking News service is also available via the free Wireless for the Blind app. It can be found on the Beacon Centre website www.beaconvision.org forward slash talking dash news. As a podcast via services such as Apple or Spotify or as a free CD, simply contact Beacon Centre on 01902-880-111. We hope you enjoy this week's edition. Hello again everyone. You're still trembling over the spooky times over Halloween. Either way, here are a few more ghostly tales from our area. But be warned, turn off now if you're of a nervous disposition. Myself, Andrew, Nathan, Angela, Christine, Ian, Helen, Mina, Simon, and of course, not forgetting, Flashback Roger. In this week's edition, we have an update from Beacon, the quiz with Mina, We have the latest local news for the Black Country. We have a special edition of our sports section. And did you know, section from Flashback Roger. Local news to start though, with Ian, Christine, but first, Angela. In a corner of Cosford's RAF Museum, a visitor stared closely at this gleaming bomber and attempted to make sense of the ghostly scene before him. Sitting in the cockpit appeared to be the spectre of a young pilot, fair-haired and clad in polonect sweater. It was not the first time the bomber that refuses to die has been linked with things that go bump in the night. It's ghosts say believers, include the Phantom Whistler and Pete the Poltergeist. Other visitors have claimed to see a similarly dressed apparition walking around the hangar or the outline of a ghost, his features swathed in a flying helmet in the cramped confines of the navigation dome. In 1984, a shocked cameraman filming for ITV holiday show Wish You Were Here alleged to have encountered the spectre of a serviceman. Seven years later, the Shropshire Star published a photograph taken by reader William Fletcher, appearing to show a ghost in the rear gunner's turret. The Avro Lincoln RF-398, a craft where instruments mysteriously spring into life, doors open and close, is claimed to be the world's most haunted plane. 
a restored machine that has been at the centre of a string of paranormal investigations. It has made national headlines and spawned X-File type TV documentaries. Tales of the Living Dead seemed to have been truly debunked decades ago when mischievous museum engineers admitted hatching a poltergeist plot to scupper plans to move the bomber from Cosford to Manchester Air and Space Museum. They concocted stories of spirits. Yet the spirit sightings have continued long after the workers' confession and they were given considerable gravitas when a BBC camera crew claimed to have seen the face of a spectre reflected in the cockpit glass behind reporter Maureen Carter. Maureen amassed 30 witness accounts of ghostly sightings for the programme. Phantom or fake news, visitors to the museum's current exhibition marking the 80th anniversary of the Dambusters raid would do well to tread carefully when approaching Avro Lincoln RF-398. Respected Staffordshire war historians Richard Pursehouse and Ben Cunliffe have recently carried out their own investigation into the raft of claims and counterclaims. The duo's conclusion? The jury's still out, said Richard from Cannock. The undisputed fact is RF-398, first flown in September 1945, never saw combat. It was based at RAF Abingdon and moved to Crossford in the summer of 1968. From there, the waters get more muddied, the story decidedly murkier. Engineers got wind of the fact RF-398, a craft they'd lovingly cared for, was to be moved and decided to create the ghost plane legend. One of them, Richard Garside, said, The star of the museum should always remain there. We wanted RF-398 to stay at Cosford. We actually invented a ghost on the Lincoln. The more people that came to see it, the more chance the aircraft would stay. In 1979, the first faux-other-world encounter was leaked to the national press and the tabloids lapped it up. As one engineer worked in the cockpit, his colleague spotted a spectre approach the bomber then simply disappear into thin air, reporters were told. To add a little more spice to the yarn, the two men claimed that the following day, aircraft parts were found mysteriously scattered on the floor below RF-398. The team were merely warming up. More stories soon surfaced. An electrician claimed he slipped while working on RF-398 and braced himself for a heavy impact with the hard floor below. Yet, as if caught by an invisible force, he was gently lowered to the ground. In 1980, Richard Garside revealed a staff member had spotted a figure moving inside the bomber while switching the hangar lights off. A thorough search found nothing. From the team's tall tales, others grew from a variety of sources. The hoax had grown legs. A May 1980 feature that carried the dramatic banner headline, Images that Haunt the Air, suggested the spectre was not a member of RF-398's crew. The ghost was that of a Polish Spitfire pilot condemned to roam the hangar after the remains of his downed crate were discovered in Shropshire and brought to Cosford. As proof, the newspaper article carried a photograph of three volunteers working on the wreck. Yet when the film was developed, a fourth figure, unknown to anyone working at Cosford, could be seen. At the same time, claims of the hangar door suddenly sliding open during a nighttime group visit hit the newsstands. In March 1989, the Sunday Mirror informed its readers the spirit of a pilot had been seen opening another door. The accompanying photograph was inconclusive. Once again, a landmark moment had been captured by an individual with a very poor camera and extremely shaky hands. A paranormal frenzy enveloped RF-398 and those engineers who came up with the ruse could hardly hide the grins on their faces. Richard Garside added, About 1980 or 1981, we were informed the Lincoln was staying at Cosford. Our task with the phony ghost was completed. The haunting ceased because there was no need. We had saved the aircraft. They couldn't stop the spook stories, however. The haunting had far from ceased. Reports of strange happenings around RF-398 continued. 
ghost hunter Peter Underwood and a team of paranormal investigators climbed into the RF-398 for an all-night vigil. They emerged next day with wild claims of seeing a figure in a flying jacket and parachute harness walking towards the plane. The phantom seemed to evaporate after a loud, unexplained noise was heard in the hangar. Chesterfield Paranormal Research Group visited Cosford in 1987. Tape recordings that night considerably cranked up the mystery. They appeared to capture the sounds of an operational aircraft. Clicks, taps, muffled voices, sighs, Morse code bleeps and the drone of other planes. After listening to the tapes, former Lincoln bomber pilot Phil Pritchett said, The noises certainly sounded like the normal noises that we get on an aeroplane, but somewhat modified. By February 1991, even highbrow BBC Radio 4 had joined the ghostly clamour. Producer Gwyn Richards was among a broadcast team who joined Ivan Spenceley on another nocturnal ghost watch. More clicks and bumps were captured on tape and those taking part alleged tiny lights danced in the fuselage. Mr Richards said, This tiny pinprick of light was moving slightly from one side to the other, but one letter sent by a listener after the broadcast gave me a possible explanation. When the crew was on night flying, they used to reverse the little concave reflector in their torches and cover the bulb with them, so that only a tiny pinprick of light was emitted from the torch, saving the pilot's night vision. In the same year, Dave Young and Steve Ray, two Wolverhampton Polytechnic psychology lecturers, spent weeks researching RF-398 secrets. A study that included making recordings, taking video footage and monitoring temperature changes. Their research proved inconclusive and final. Cosford Air Museum declined any further requests for paranormal investigations. That was not the end of the ghosts of RF-398. Far from it. In 1996, ITV paranormal show Strange But True, hosted by Michael Aspel, aired an explanation for the rash of paranormal activity. Apparently, Master Pilot Hiller flew RF-398 on its final flight and loved her so much, he promised he would haunt his baby when he died. Hiller transferred to a de Havilland Dove aircraft and died shortly after when the plane crashed near Cosford, viewers were informed. Parts of the wreckage were allegedly brought to RAF Cosford, Hiller's ghost residing in the twisted metal. A nice story, a gripping story, but bunkum. Historians Pursehouse and Cunliffe have discovered. There is no record of a master pilot Hiller and RF-398's final flight was piloted by Flight Lieutenant John Langley. Over the years, mediums have claimed the Lincoln bomber is haunted by two spirits, one a 19-year-old wireless operator, the other a wartime pilot. The ghosts even serenaded one medium with a selection of 1940s classics. That is a step too far into the supernatural. Walk this earth if you must, cruel spirits, but please, spare us the karaoke. Up next, we hear from Helen, who, as usual, has our latest Beacon update. Hi, everyone. It's Helen from Beacon here with your weekly update. And we are starting this week with one of my favourite things. A big thank you. Yes, we want to show our appreciation to the swimmers who took part in our September Swim 250 Challenge and have been receiving their medals this week. The Beacon Mermaid swim team, made up of our members, staff and volunteers, collected their medals en route to their latest pool session, while Ellie, who is a valuable member of our Beacon Care team, received a medal and a tote bag after raising more than £300. Amazing! Thank you for making a splash in aid of Beacon. Next this week. We are so excited to tell you that we have been shortlisted in the first ever Dudley Borough Community Awards. The awards, organised by the Hales Owen News, Dudley News and Stourbridge News, will celebrate all the wonderful things happening across the borough. 
Beacon is shortlisted in the Diversity in the Community category, which is all about championing inclusion and diversity. We'll find out if we win at a special ceremony next month, and we'd like to wish all the finalists the best of luck. Now, if you fancy getting out and about to make the most of autumn, why not check out our Community Activity Programme? You can find out what sessions we have lined up this week and how to book your place on our website, www.beaconvision.org or call us on 01902 Now last this week, this is a nice little story. We are delighted to be working in partnership with the Wolverhampton Grand Theatre to recruit volunteers to look after assistant dogs during performances at the theatre. Volunteers will be able to look after the dogs in the theatre's Encore Lounge with a complimentary drink while the owners enjoy performances that may not be appropriate for assistance dogs. If you're a dog lover and would be interested in joining Beacon's volunteer team for this unique and flexible volunteer opportunity, please contact Debbie Fox at people at beaconvision.org or on 01902 Volunteers will need to have a basic DBS check and two references. That's it for this week. I'll be back to catch up with you all again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for that update, Helen. Next up, we have another block of local news. Britain's most haunted road, the spooky stretch where a real mystery killer struck. It is, to commuters, a fairly nondescript stretch of A Road, an asphalt lane running through countryside that has never inspired artists to reach for their easels. Constable would have certainly given the strip a wide berth. Yet this mere five-mile segment of the A513 running from Milford Common on the outskirts of Stafford to Worsley Bridge on the fringes of Cannock Chase is the country's most significant highway on any supernatural sat-nav. It is the root of all evil on the route planners of psychics. This small link of the A513 is, X-Files magazines and websites agree, Britain's most haunted road. And the countryside bordering it has been christened the UK's Paranormal Pyramid, following a string of ghostly sightings. Travel along the bland tarmac ribbon and a bump in the night may be more phantom than mere flat tyre. A poltergeist rather than pothole, say believers. The catalogue of paranormal activity includes a peddling poltergeist, beautiful female spectre that only runs on Wednesdays, ghost in Puritan garb and more flying saucers than you can shake a shaky camera at. And the A513's undead travellers have spread their power to the surrounding acres, with Seven Springs, woodland that is a mere stone's throw from Worsley Bridge, a particular hotspot. According to folklore, spirits have strolled with unsuspecting hikers at the beauty spot for hundreds of years. Some visitors have even glimpsed the Spectre of Seven Springs, a beautiful veiled woman who glides gracefully between the trees. After she made herself known to a number of startled nearby residents, the local paper the Stafford Advertiser dispatched a reporter to hunt the lady down on the night of Christmas Eve, 1949. This spawns two questions that are very much of this world. What kind of a hard-bitten editor sends one of his staff on a Christmas Eve midnight ghost hunt? Did any young journalist with more ambition than sense volunteer for such a vigil? Unsurprisingly, the young man failed to clinch an interview with the Phantom. 
In his shoes, I would have hit the pub, drunk myself dizzy, and dragged an imaginary account of the search, apparently on a very cold night, through the fog of my hangover a few days later. The lad did, however, paint a very compelling picture for readers. Seven Springs is a well-known Calac Chase beauty spot, where many Staffordians will have happily picnicked and walked their dogs by day. Come the night, the scene is changed. There is no warmth in the air. Eerie shadows are thrown by the gaunt-limbed trees. Just the atmosphere for a ghost, in fact. A vicious, headless ghost, perhaps with rattling chains and blood-curdling groans. But the spectre of Seven Springs is quite different. She is very beautiful. Her hair falls in tresses about her shoulders. Her eyes are clear but seem filled with unhappiness. The journalist leaves it outlandishly late in the feature to inform readers the most inoffensive spook to have walked the face of this earth didn't show up. But he did interview two people. One, a prominent local councillor who had seen the spectre. The advertiser revealed Alderman George Owen saw a woman bathed in an iridescent light, apparently anxious for a lift along the road. His chauffeur stopped the car and leaned out to speak to the woman. She looked at the woman and disappeared. There was no covering for her, a bemused Mr. Owen claimed. One minute she was standing near my car, the next she had disappeared. I hardly had time to see her, but I thought at first she was on her way home from a dance. Her gown reached the ground, and she had a veil over her head. She looked into my car for about 30 seconds, but never said a word. I've looked for her ever since, but she has never returned. The skeptic in me believes a woman, probably returning from a night out, attempted to hitchhike. The alderman's limo pulled up. She didn't like the look of those inside the vehicle and legged it. Uh, that's it. Frederick Wiggin spied the ghost while riding his bike. A tall figure dressed in black who stood watching me for two minutes, he said. Her face was illuminated as though she stood in the beam of a car headlamp. But there was no one else near us. The woman just disappeared. The many other world stories surrounding Wolseley Bridge and Seven Springs can, and probably should, be taken with a pinch of salt. Yet the most chilling mystery of all is very, very real. It too has spawned a stream of female spook sightings. It has been 66 years since the murder of Elsie Taylor, a woman whose love life can best be described as tangled, complex and extremely active and still the killer remains unmasked. The 47-year-old was last seen drinking in the Walsley Arms, a pub on the A513 with a mystery man. Her companion that night, April 12, 1957, could have been any one of several suitors. Elsie's beaten and bound body was discovered at her Bridgetown Cannock home three days later. Despite a massive manhunt and a police operation that saw 1,000 sets of fingerprints taken, no one was ever arrested for the crime, archives studied by historians Richard Pursehouse and Ben Cunliffe have shown. Elsie, always immaculately dressed, had her share of male admirers. She was having an affair with two lovers, both married at the same time, and allocated each set days for romantic liaisons. Mondays, Wednesdays, Saturdays and Sundays were spent with one lover. The other had to make do with Tuesdays and Fridays. The two men were blissfully unaware they had a rival. Public opinion at the time dripped 1950s morality the woman had played fast and loose and paid the ultimate price. Even at the inquest, the coroner stated, 
The jury might think that if her sexual life had not been so varied, she might still be alive today. You can almost hear him whisper seductress under his whiskers. The finger of suspicion was initially pointed at the lover who found the body, but the colliery fireman was erased from the list of suspects after providing what police believed was a cast-iron alibi. It was this affair that led to the breakdown of Elsie's seven-year marriage. Husband Day found out about the infidelity and kicked her out of the marital home. The fireman lover died just 12 months later in an unsolved hit-and-run. That crime has produced its own conspiracy theory. The other man in Elsie's life was a local poultry farmer believed to be her drinking companion at the Walsley Arms. Yes, there is the scent of something unexplained hanging over the A513 paranormal pyramid, but it has nothing to do with crypto-conspiracies, tormented spirits or extraterrestrials. It is the whodunit surrounding Elsie Taylor's murder. Now it's time to test your knowledge as we have the quiz questions for this edition brought to us by Mina. Hello and welcome to this week's fantastic flashback Halloween quiz. All the answers you need can be found later in Flashback Rogers' Did You Know feature. But for now, these are your questions. <laughs> Question 1. Where locally is the Grey Lady reputedly seen? Question 2. In what century was the manor house in West Brom built? Question 3. Apart from ghosts, what else has been reported on Cannock Chase? Question 4. Where in the Station Hotel is the ghost of Victorian Lady seen? Question 5. Which room in the Station Hotel is the most infamous? And finally, question 6. What is the name that's been given to a ghost in Draculo's Tunnels? I will be back with you later in the show, but for now, best of luck! Up now, we have a special edition of this week's sports feature. As the family trudged along the uneven, narrow path in fading daylight that streaked the skyline blood orange, a haunting howl surfaced from densely packed trees. A mother tightened her grip on the child in her arms and looked nervously around. The party quickened their steps. Wolves had caught their scent. The deathly baying indicated they were coming closer. This scene could, and would, have been played out time and time again in the 13th century England. The woodlands of Cannock Chase, the wild open landscapes of Shropshire, the forests that spread across what is now our block country, all rang out to the call of the wild, the wolf's cry. The beasts were once common, very common, 
The rat is now considered Britain's premier wildlife villain, but back then it was the wolf. The forests that bled from Shropshire's border into Wales in particular teemed with packs. In our region, wolves posed such a danger to travellers, King Edward I, monarch from 1272 to 1307, tasked Peter Corbett with wiping them out in Herefordshire, Worcestershire, Staffordshire and Shropshire. He was the Wolf Finder General. There are those who believe he failed, with sightings of the animals surfacing to this very day. In February 2010, claims of a wolf on Cunard Chase grabbed national media attention. Walker Mark Sutton told the press, I was walking my dog close to Broadhurst Green and I believe something that could be described as a wolf appeared. It was not a panther and it was too large to be a dog. It was walking through the bushes without a care in the world. Fellow eyewitness Peter Derbyshire said, I was driving through the trees in the direction of Stafford when I saw something dark moving through the bushes on the right-hand side of the car. It was definitely not a cat. It had more of a dog's characteristics. It had a long nose and long pointy ears. Just last year, Chris Howard believed he had encountered a wolf in the forest of Dean, Gloucestershire. I heard a crack in the woods and thought it might be a boar, he said. I shone my torch and I saw a wolf with its nose down on the ground and then it looked at me. The hair around its neck was long, its eyes white. This is not a story of X-Files mysteries and it should be noted Canuck Chase has also been the setting for alleged close encounters with big cats, half-pig, half-human mutations and UFOs. This is a story of the planned return of wild wolves to their original haunts. It is, say supporters of the scheme, a prime species for rewilding. Bison and beavers have already been reintroduced, so why shouldn't wolves and lynx both driven to extinction by mankind, he brought home. It's not a pie-in-the-sky crackpot slice of conservation. Many, many hours and considerable money has been spent on making the dream a reality. Encountering a warning wolves notice during days out at Sandwell Valley, Clun Forest or The Chase would certainly give family picnics an added rush of adrenaline. As a journalist, I'd love to see a stray wolf run onto the pitch at Molyneux, as urban foxes have done at many grounds. The newspaper headlines would be simply glorious. When the last English wolf was slain is not known, but they were certainly close to extinction by 1480, with perhaps a few remaining packs in the Derbyshire peaks and Lancashire forests. Countless towns and villages have been given the dubious honour of destroying the last of the English. Ludgavan, Cornwall, Wormhill, Derbyshire, Sittenham Wood, North Yorkshire, Bartholomew, Cheshire. Two communities claim to have seen off the last Welsh wolf, both during the early 16th century. Lanrotid, close to the Shropshire border, and Mantorog in Snowdonia National Park. The animals survived much longer in the wilds of Scotland, although claims they still roamed the glens and highland woods as late as 1788 appear fanciful. The smart money is on Sir Ewan Cameron of Lochiel, killing the last one close to Killincrankey in 1680, and that stuffed specimen was later sold at auction. Deerstalker McQueen of Pala Chocrain roasted, he slaughtered a wolf, a huge black beast that had fatally savaged two children in Tarnaway Forest, Moraysia, in 1743. That has been dismissed as folklore. 
It is surprising the wolf lasted as long as it did in the face of a seek and destroy policy that stretched back to Roman times. Back in AD 950, Welsh King Hywel Didar received an annual tribute of 300 wolf skins. Those brought before Norman courts of law were fined in wolf tongues. The more serious the crime, the more tongues were required. Only the rat has been persecuted with greater zeal. It was King Edward I who really cranked up the war on our native wolves, ordering their total eradication from his realm. In Scotland in the late 16th century, packs posed such a threat in some areas that hostels, spittles, were built along highways for travellers' protection. Wolf-proof coffins were also very popular after packs entered burial grounds and unearthed loved ones. Those yearning for the beast's return would do well to consider that. It's distressing enough to discover badgers have damaged Aunt Ethel's grave. Discovering wolves had dined on her remains is the stuff of nightmares. Nevertheless, the campaign is growing. Not surprisingly, sheep farmers have misgivings, grave misgivings. George Monbiot, spokesman for Rewilding Britain, said, We could introduce wolves tomorrow. They would be perfectly happy foraging out of your dustbins. We live in a shadowland, a dim, flattened relic of what there once was and what there could be again. Maybe so, but in this dim, flattened England, I can visit recycling centres without fighting off wolves. I'm pretty sure the nation considers the prospect of wolves ripping their bin bags apart too high a price to pay. Dr. Martin Gorman, Vice Chairman of the UK Mammal Society, first ignited interest in the reintroduction debate. In 1999, he saw the return of wolves as an ideal way of ending the headache of the UK's ever-expanding deer population. Three years later, wealthy Western Highlands landowner Paul von Flissingen put forward the economic argument. A lot of tourists would pay a lot of money to see wild wolves. In 2007, Richard Morley of the Wolves and Human Foundation announced the campaign was a howling success, but called for the concerns of sheep farmers to be considered. Paul Lister, laird of Allerdale Estate in the Caledonian Forest, has taken matters a step further. He has prepared his estate for wolves, should rewilding be given the green light. Wildwood Escott Wildlife Centre in Devon represents something of a halfway house. It has a wolf pack in semi-wild surroundings their woodland home fenced and secure. George Hyde, the expert in charge of the animals, acknowledges the species' return may never happen, but information gained in studying the pros and cons may prove vitally important for wider conservation. It's a bit like the space race, he explained. No one really knew if it was possible to get to the moon, but the discoveries made during the research have proved invaluable. Those discoveries include Teflon and Velcro, I am no space boffin, but it appears an inordinate amount of money spent on an alternative to zips and a way of preventing fried eggs sticking to pans. It's the same with reintroducing wolves and bears, Mr. Hyde added. Okay, it may not be possible, but the knowledge gained in research is vital and of such importance. Up next, it's trivia time, brought to us by Flashback Roger and his Did You Know feature. It's all yours, Roger. Take it away. Hello again, everyone. He's still trembling over the spooky times over Halloween. Either way... Here are a few more ghostly tales from our area, but be warned, turn off now if you're of a nervous disposition. 
so let's go haunting. Did you know that? Dudley Castle is considered to be one of the most haunted places in the West Midlands. One of the most infamous ghosts at the castle is said to be that of the Grey Lady. Many people believe that it is the spirit of one Dorothy Beaumont who died in the castle during childbirth. A grey ghostly form is regularly seen. Other ghosts that frequent the castle include a pair of phantom legs seen by a stone coffin and a young drummer boy who was killed at the castle during the English Civil War. And West Bromwich Manor House is a medieval 13th century grade 1 listed building. Eyewitnesses have seen the spectre of a black bearded man who simply stands to stare out of the windows of the Manor House's chapel when people are walking past the building. And you certainly scared a few people, I can tell you. There is also talk of a medieval era ghost who seems to frequent the ladies' toilets. And Cannock Chase is the home to the famous black-eyed girl. She is described as being short with coal black eyes and her head is tilted back at an unnatural angle. She is believed to be the victim of a diphtheria outbreak in the area during the 1800s. But incidentally, Canic Chase has also been said to play host to many a UFO sighting. And closer to home, the station hotel in Dudley dates all the way back to 1863. And there was even at least one documented murder. It's of the hotel manager who murdered a maid and hid her corpse in the beer barrel. No wonder the hotel's haunted. The cellar seems to be something of a focal point for the paranormal activity, where a lady in a Victorian dress is often spotted down there, and hotel staff say they are spooked regularly. And things are not any quieter upstairs in the station hotel either. An elderly male spirit is often seen sitting at one of the tables in the hotel dining room, and rooms 213 through to 217 are said to be haunted by a spectral woman in white and with room 214 is the most infamous. However, all of this pales into comparison to the most terrifying paranormal activity of all. An unknown entity in the hotel dining room and that regularly throws knives at the hotel staff. And then Draclow Tunnels near Kinver is another spooky place. It's believed that at least six people died during the construction of the tunnels. One of these spirits is known by the name of Oswald and he's said to be very mischievous. He likes to pull hair, move objects and touch people all throughout the tunnels. Well then I've finished. You can come out from behind the settee now. I've grown up and mind over ghosts and whatnot, but I'm not in any rush to find out to be honest. So I'll leave you for this week and seek comfort in my teapot and my chocky bickies. Any road up. I'll say bye for now. ta a bit. Ta-da! Ooh! What was that? Was that you? No. Ta-da! Up next, let's have another block of local news. A gruesome tale of criminal dead put on display. Haunted by the spirits of Gibbet Lane. In autumn twilights, sunshine still piercing the canopy of trees and casting a lacework of dancing shadows on the narrow pathway below. You can almost hear the ghosts of Gibbet Lane. There are, legend tell us, many of them. Close your eyes and you can hear their mournful cries near, hidden by the rustle of leaves. It remains, decades after the hodgepodge of reports that made this walkway one of Britain's paranormal hotspots. An eerie place. Is it the domain of the undead? Probably not. During my visit, I discovered discarded crisp and packets. The spirits of Gibbet Lane Kimber evidently have wants that are very much of this world. 
Judging by the left-behind litter, they also include lager. Yet the innocuous path has a gruesome history, a real criminal history, that no doubt fueled tall tales of things that go bump in the night. Gibbeting was the horrific practice of placing the remains of an executed individual on public display as a warning to others. And a criminal corpse was left to hang from a tree in this dark corner of the West Midlands. The body of Will Howe hanged for shooting popular squire Benjamin Robbins in what would today be described as a mugging was strung up in 1812. Widespread claims it was the last gibbeting to take place in England. The punishment halted because ruthless Will's spectre delighted in greeting walkers long after the villain was nailed to a trunk are fictional. Documents suggest courts were making such barbaric orders as late as 1832. The story of Howe's demise is, understandably, punctured with holes. We don't know which form of gibbeting was employed. And there were many forms. A body could be coated in tar to slow decomposition and simply secured by rope or nails. In one case, more than 30 long nails were used. It could be placed in a casket or held together by an iron bodywork frame. It could be cut into four or five pieces, each given a separate viewing platform. We don't know how long Howe's corpse was left in the lane, and they could remain as a grisly landmark for a very, very long time. The record held by John Breeds, who murdered Alan Greble in Rye, East Sussex in 1743, is a staggering 20 years. We do know Howe played no part in gibbeting, the preserve of murderers, pirates, highwaymen, traitors and sheep rosters, as it fell from favour. It was scrubbed largely through people power, and that campaign was not driven by morality. Citizens strongly objected to living close to a gibbet. The stench was appalling. The risk of disease heightened and the view irrevocably spoiled. It must have made selling a house difficult. That rotting corpse nailed to an oak at the bottom of the garden is a nuisance, but you soon get used to it and beyond that is the most marvellous view of the Malvern Hills. The clergy, who felt punishment should stop at death, also demanded an end to gibbeting. There are two versions of what happened to Will Howe's body, one plausible, the other ghoulish. According to folklore, three drunken young men approached the body shortly after it had been put in place and hurled stones at it. Will Howe, how beast, one laughed. The dead man slowly turned his head towards those tormenting him and growled, Cold and clammy! He was removed soon after. In a less popular version of events, the body was stolen, as many were. Scientists of the day paid handsomely for cadavers to help their research into decomposition. Female corpses were particularly prized and, as a result, they were spared the gibbet. Wipe away the Exvar theories and you have a gripping crime. Howe was a dapper man, immaculately attired beyond his means, and the fur waistcoat he prized so much would prove the killer's downfall. The murder he committed so appalled the local community, two top detectives were sent from London to find the killer. Bow Street Runners, Harry Atkins and Sam Taunton. Benjamin Robbins, who owned Dunsley Hall, was ambushed on the night of December the 18th, 1812, as he walked home from Stourbridge Market. The 57-year-old struck up a conversation with an elegantly dressed stranger. They exchanged pleasantries. Then, as Mr Robbins attempted to continue his journey, the other man produced a pistol and shot his victim in the back. 
he rifled the squire's pockets, taking £26, the proceeds of the day's sheep sale, and a watch. Somehow, Mr Robbins found the strength to stumble and crawl to his home. He died in agony eight days later. Starbridge surgeons Isaac Downing and John Corser reported death was caused by a leaden bullet which had entered the middle of the back just on the spine and which was extracted from his right side about 14 inches from the place it had entered. The person who fired it must have been near to and behind him, they said. Like some 19th century Starsky and Hutch, Atkins and Taunton were relentless in their pursuit of justice. They were a revelation. One witness told them he'd spotted an individual in tricorn hat, a pistol wedged in his waistband, lurking at the crime scene shortly before the shooting. The landlord of the nearby Nags Head Coaching Inn recalled serving someone matching the description, but added the customer sported a very distinctive fawn skin waistcoat. That same man had travelled by gig to Ombersley, and the detective soon had a name. Will Howe, who worked on the Marchioness of Downshire's country estate. Atkins and Taunton travelled to the stately home only to discover the bird had flown. Howe had packed his bag and left the Marchioness's employ 24 hours earlier. Thankfully, a worker at Worcester Coaching Station came forward with vital information. He remembered a man matching Howe's description but calling himself John Wood, asking for two boxes to be forwarded to the Castle and Falcon in Aldersgate, London. The detectives headed back to the smoke and pounced when Howe collected his property. The box's contents condemned him. One contained a pistol, the other a fawn waistcoat, and documents revealing a watch, exactly the same make and model as that stolen from Mr Robbins, had been sold by Howe. While in prison awaiting trial, Howe made the fatal mistake of penning a letter to his wife, which was intercepted by Atkins and Taunton. In the note, the prisoner had given directions to a haystack and ordered his wife to search for a packet secreted within it. The detectives combed the stack and found the partner to the pistol in Howe's box, together with three bullets. The evidence was so overwhelming, the jury took only seven minutes to find Howe guilty of willful murder. My heart is innocent, he shouted as the verdict was announced. In passing sentence, Mr Justice Bailey told the condemned man, After you are dead, you will be cut down and your body will be dissected and afterwards anatomised. That was nowhere near justice for the powerful friends of Squire Robbins. Stourbridge magistrates requested the body be brought back from Stafford Jail and hanged in chains at the spot where the crime was committed. Their wish was granted. Following the good news, posters were printed and plastered around Stourbridge and Kimver proclaiming, William Howe will be removed from Stafford this day the irons on which he is to be suspended being previously fixed on his body at the site, and preachers gave sermons there. Atkins and Taunton emerged as heroes. One newspaper stated, The following case, while it exhibits the utmost depravity and wickedness, affords a consolatory instance of the persevering industry of two officers of justice, whose conduct merits the highest praise for the apprehension of the murderer. 
Hal, if you believe the stories, was far from finished. His ghost was even reported in popular 19th century magazine, Illustrated Police News. In the 1940s, a local woman made headlines after reporting a chilling encounter in Gibbet Lane. She became aware of footsteps behind her, turned and came face to face with a smartly dressed individual, his head lolling on a stretched, scarred neck. In the dark days of justice, they hanged Will Howell's body like a brace of pheasants. Evidently, the man took exception to the undignified end. In life, he horrified the general public. According to folklore, he continues to do so in death. Now, here come the quiz answers, and they're brought to us by Mina. Hello, and here are your answers for this week's totally irresistible flashback Halloween quiz. Feeling confident? How will you score? Let's see. Question one. Where locally is the grey lady reputedly seen? Answer. Dudley Castle. Question two. In what century was the manor house in West Brom built? And the answer here is the 13th century. Question 3. Apart from ghosts, what else has been reported on Canic Chase? And the answer here is UFOs. Question four. Where in the station hotel is the ghost of Victorian lady seen? And the answer, in the cellar. Question five. Which room in the station hotel is the most infamous? And the answer here is, it's room 214. And finally, question six. What is the name that's been given to a ghost in Dracula's tunnels? And the answer? <laughs> He's named Oswald. Did you get them all right? If not, not to worry, as I will be back next week to test you all once again. But for now, enjoy a most boo-to-foo time of the year. See you next week. So that's it for another edition of the Black Country Talking News. A reminder to our CD listeners who have received CDs in padded envelopes that you don't need to send anything back to us. If you have a sight loss tip or someone you would like to wish a happy birthday to, just say hello to. Maybe even a poem or talking book you would like reviewed, then please get in touch with us at the Beacon Centre. Call 01902 Email bctn at beaconvision.org or write to us at the Black Country Talking News, Beacon, Wolverhampton Road East, Wolverhampton, WV4 6AZ. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening 
And thank you to all our supporters, donators and volunteers who without their support will be unable to run this free service. Please note the information and views expressed in this recording does not necessarily represent the views of Beacon or Talking News and were accurate at the time of recording. Mentions of goods and services does not imply endorsement and whilst every care is taken to supply accurate information, Beacon and Talking News do not undertake liability for any errors. So it's goodbye from all of us. Stay safe, have a good week and we look forward to bringing you next week's edition of the Black Country Talking News. ta -ra.